Thank you, Kristen. What a tremendous question that song raises. What do I know? Do you ever feel that way? Start talking about the big subject, the big person of God. And you start trying to get at some attributes, some characteristics, some descriptors, and it all falls short of just really kind of grasping who is this holy, transcendently other one. And he is knowable. He makes himself known to us, but he remains mysterious. We cannot and do not fully comprehend. And on one hand, he declares those of us who are in Christ are holy. And on the other hand, we are in this process of him sanctifying and making us holy. Are you confused? And it's both a once and for all act that he imparts on us, but it's also a relational process that we engage with him until we draw no more breath and then he finishes the whole thing and we're done. So, as we start thinking about how much do we really grasp, how much do we really understand about God, let me just throw up a couple of snapshots um, that may muddy and clear the water at the same time. Can we live a little paradoxically for a minute? So, for example, in John chapter 8, you know the story where a woman was taken in the very act of adultery. Now, you just have to let that kind of hit you for a moment. What, do they go and seize her out of a bedroom? The Bible says she was caught in the very act of adultery and drugged through the city streets and hurled at the feet of Jesus like some whipped dog. And these religious leaders snarled at Jesus that the law says such an adulterous person should be stoned to death. What do you say? And, of course, Jesus marvelously responds, I say, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, the crowd began to dissipate and leave until it's just Jesus and the woman alone. And Jesus says to her, I do not condemn you. Go and stop your sinful way. I do not condemn you. Now, when I think about my own sinful ways, and sometimes, you know, kind of the guilt and the shame of my own sinful ways hits me, it can kind of hit me in a condemning way. And these words echo in my head and my heart. I don't condemn you. But stop it. 
and go a different direction. That's a snapshot. Hold that picture and turn the page to another picture that's found in Matthew 23. Now, if you'd read the preceding couple of chapters, you would have seen a lot of interaction with Jesus and Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, religious leaders. And they are testing him about this and questioning him about that and pushing back on another. And at the end of it all, with this group who are without question morally superior to everyone around them, this is the cream of the town. This is the good of the good. These are people that... um, you know, abstain from all kinds of evil and practice all kinds of goodness and worship God and serve God regularly and uh, are generous and, and give and tithe and all these kinds of things. And in light of all of this interaction, Jesus says to them, you're hypocrites. You're sons of hell. You're blind guides. You're wicked snakes. You're blind fools. You're a brood of vipers. And on and on he goes. And so I'm looking at the adulterous woman, and I'm looking at the religious and morally superior, and I'm listening to the messages that Jesus shares with these two groups. And I I acknowledge I've got to press deeper into that to understand what is going on there. Because Jesus is not against good behavior. He's not against uh, morality and our practicing things that uh, uh, forsake sinful ways. What Jesus is for, though... is something to transpire within us. So that it's not just an outward job. It's not just the appearance of goodness, but His working of goodness in us. Are you beginning to catch some of that nuance, some of that difference? Because here's what's happening, friends. When Jesus got in the presence of of the woman, she melted into repentance. When Jesus got into the presence of the good guys, they hardened into pride. And you go, well, she had a lot to melt into repentance about. They didn't have as much to melt into repentance about. Yes, they did. And they just didn't know it. Because what Jesus would go on to say to them, it's just like you are this whitewashed tomb. It is a beautiful, glistening in the sunshine, glowing tomb on the outside. But inside is dead man's bones. Inside it's corruption. Inside it's a corpse. And here's what I know. I have often through the years been able to project a much better image of what a great guy I am than what I am coming to grips with on the inside. And so if there's anything we take away from these two little snapshots in Jesus' life is one, put zero trust in your own goodness. 
And I just echo the words of Jesus. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Because the fact of the matter is, friends, we want to and we do put trust in our own goodness. I don't care how many times I've said it from this platform. I don't care how many times we've read it in the scriptures. We still think deep down in the hardwired core of our lives, God is going to grade us on a curve. And as long as we're better than so-and-so, we're going to be okay with him. And it does not, it will not, it never will be that way. There is no curve with God. And the second thing we take away from that snapshot is whatever we think about our good works, God thinks something else about it. In Isaiah 64, Isaiah is coming to grips with this because he has been coming to grips with a holy God. And he begins to understand no matter how good I've tried to be in life, I am like one who is unclean. There is a corruption in my core. So that my righteous deeds, the good stuff that I do, is as polluted garments, the ESV says. The Old English says filthy rags. It basically refers to a garment that a woman who has her period has soiled. That's the image that God gave Isaiah about our goods, our best, our righteous deeds. That's what it amounts to, to him, because of his holiness. That's how far removed and different his holiness is from us. Now, one of the guys that I've been thinking about, reading about, looking into the life about lately has been Martin Luther. You remember Martin Luther, the German who was a monk and a priest that later uh, had some experiences with God that kind of propelled him in this Reformation way. And thus, there are now Catholics and Protestants. I mean, it was a big deal. Who is this guy? What in the world was God doing in this guy's life? Back in the 16th century. Let me just tell you one little anecdote out of his life. So Martin Luther had already prepared and studied to be a lawyer. And after he got his credentials and began to practice law, the common reputation, the common opinion of Martin Luther was he was brilliant. He not only fully comprehended the laws of man, but the laws of God and and was a brilliant lawyer, and he felt convicted along the way that God wanted him not in law, but in the practices of the faith as a minister. So, he, he left law and entered the monastery and began studying the faith. And he was one of those over-the-top guys. You know, he, he was not unlike the Apostle Paul at that point. He excelled in everything he put his hand to with respect to the studies of the faith. He prayed more than anybody else. He prayed for hours on end every day. When I used to study about his prayer life and and would see that he began the day with four hours of prayer, I would be shamed by that. Not challenged. (laughs) Just shamed. And 
all of his practices were just over the top like that. And so one of the practices in the monastery was that you would daily have confession. And so you would go to the confession booth, and there you would meet with the Father, and you would confess your sins. And for most of the monks, that would be a few minutes, right? I mean, how much sin are you getting to, into in the monastery? So, you know, a monk would come in and confess to the Father, I saw Brother so-and-so's meat on his plate last night, and I coveted it. I wished I'd had more meat. Please forgive me. You know, another monk would come in and like, uh, I have sinned. I uh, did not go to bed last night in a timely fashion. By candlelight, I studied my Bible for another hour. And so I confess, you know, in two, three minutes, the father would, uh, you know, absolve them of their sin, maybe give them a little penance and they'd go on their way. Martin Luther would come into the confessional for hours and hours into the minutia of his sin. Sins of thought, sins of conversation, sins of actions, and so on it would go. So much so that his peers began to conclude, this guy's a slacker. He's only in the confessional because he didn't want to come out here and work like the rest of us. Now, psychologists through the years have had you know, the best time analyzing Martin Luther from a distance. And many psychologists have concluded with that kind of daily confessional practice that was going on in his life, he must have some kind of guilt complex. He must have some kind of pathology. I want to contend that Martin Luther didn't have a pathology Martin Luther had a clear grasp of holiness. Because part of what was happening along the way is that he was being revolutionized by his study of the book of Romans. You know the book of Romans? Many consider to be the most theological book in all of the Bible. And it's filled with the meat of what we understand in theology about sin and the breaking of God's law and how God justifies that and how God will rectify that and how he can make it so that we can be forgiven and atoned for and we can be saved. And so he's making his way through Romans and the guy's a lawyer already. He already has this great grasp of law. And so he already knows how busted we are, all of us, as lawbreakers. He knows how lost he is. He knows how hopeless it is for anybody by their own good deeds to do enough good deeds to be reconciled to God. That's why he's in the confessional. So much. I mean, he's, he's trying to get there, and he cannot get there. And perhaps more so than anybody else that ever drew breath, he tried to get there by daily confession and good deeds. And what he discovered was that he was absolutely, totally, completely, eternally dependent on the grace of God. And when he came to grips with that, he was converted. A monk who was becoming a priest became saved. 
So he's uh, presiding as a newly ordained priest over his first communion mass. You know, if you've not done that kind of thing, you are so struck with your unworthiness to handle the elements of the bread and the wine as you are commemorating the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. It is a sobering thing. And so he is presiding over his first communion mass. And all of his uh, teachers and and some of the higher-ups in the faith are there. His father is there. And he already has this far-reaching reputation of his brilliance, of his eloquence. He's a tremendous speaker. He's a compelling orator. And everybody is really kind of looking forward to him overseeing his first Mass. And so he approaches the table. And he begins to pray the prayer of consecration over the bread and the wine. And suddenly, he can't talk. A word will not come out of his eloquent mouth. And there is this incredibly awkward silence in the house. And his father's getting uncomfortable and agitated and embarrassed. And his mentors and teachers are all perplexed. You know, what, what's going on with Martin? And he cannot proceed. And in the thinking and feeling of everyone, he's ruined the Mass. He, he just made a mess of the Mass, Right? And so it's over, and he tries to, you know, pick up what's left of his shattered uh, sense in all of this. And someone later asks, what happened, Martin? What was going on? And he said, at these words, the prayer of consecration, at these words, I was utterly stupefied. And I was terror stricken. And I thought, with what tongue shall I address such majesty? Seeing that all men ought to tremble, even in the presence of an earthly prince. Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And I get it. I am dust and ashes and full of sin. And I'm speaking to the eternal, living, true God. Friends, that's what these days and this journey is about. Our coming close to God and His coming close. So that some of, like some of these people of old who trembled and quaked and were speechless in all of their eloquence knew that they were in the presence of the Holy One. 
that we get that. Now, one more little snapshot. And I'm going to read this one. So if you want to look with me in Luke 18, you know the story of the rich young ruler. But I want you to see the words freshly on the page if you have your Bible. Here's a guy who is sharp. Here's a guy that may have been a Martin Luther in his day. He, you know, was brilliant. He was educated. He was wealthy. He had the brightest future ahead of him. Uh, No doubt he was esteemed by all around. And as Jesus is in the vicinity, he comes up to Jesus one day, verse 18, and he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, God help us. He said, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, okay, well then there's one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Think with me about this for just a moment. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There is absolutely the connotation of, here's one good person speaking to another good person. So, you know, what remains for me to just make sure? I think I'm pretty sure I've got eternal life. But just to, you know, if there's any one last thing, what what remains? And Jesus said, listen, nobody's good but God. And it wasn't like he was denying his own divinity at that point. He's just making a point. The only thing that's good is God himself. So let's think about this together. What are the commandments? And so he starts rattling off those that are often referred to as in the second tier, the second tablet of the commandments that have to do with how we relate to one another. Now, here's what we need to remember that the scriptures consistently teach through all of the test, both testaments, all through the history leading up to this guy's life. Right. Psalm 14, two and three. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God, because they have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. And any good student of the law and of the word of God would have known that. And so he goes down this second tablet of the Ten Commandments. And, you know, do you honor your mother and father? Do you steal? Do you murder? You know, all these things about how we treat each other. And he goes, you know what? I've kept all those things all my life. 
And Jesus cut to the quick immediately, left the second tablet, went to the first tablet, went to the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and basically addressed that by saying, okay, then sell everything you got. Oh, oh, sell everything I got. Yeah, yeah, give it to the poor. Then you'll have eternal life. Because what Jesus knew, friends, is that not only had this guy not kept all the commandments. Okay, Jesus had just gone through the Sermon on the Mount. He had, he had just made it clear that if you hate your brother, you've in fact murdered him. If you lust after another person, you've in fact uh, had adultery committed. So he's, he's trying to take it all down to the core, down to the, uh, the, the nuance of what the commandments are all about. But this is all going right by the guy. And so he knows he hasn't kept all these commandments. So he just goes right to the first one. And says, so, you know, you're an idolater. Your stuff means more to you than God. And here's how I'll show you. Sell it all, give it all away, and then we'll know that God's first in your life. And I think this is one of the saddest passages in all the, uh, uh, the text because we're told that he heard these sayings and became very sad and he walked away. The light of God finally had shone on his heart in such a way that he could see it. That's a gift for you to be able to see, you know what, I do have a corrupt heart. I, I, do, I don't do good things out of goodness. I do good things out of duplicity. I do good things because it makes me feel good. I do good things because it impresses other people and enhances my reputation. I do good things for a lot of reasons that are not because I'm good. And so when that light actually shines on our heart and we can see corruption like that, that is a blessing. That is a gift where God is saying, now you can draw near to me because you see this stuff, repent. And so he gets the gift and he gets to see the stuff. And he walks away. Can't, can't do that. Can't go there. And that's the thing that makes me tremble so much about these days. Because when I began to sense that God was inviting us into this journey and into this season together, I, I just had the sense that he was, he, he'd been doing it on my heart. He's going to shine light. He was going to bring revelation. He was going to disclose to us stuff that still stands between us and him with the invitation to let go of that, to repent, and to more fully turn to him. And some of us would be sad and walk away. And it's my prayer, friends, by God's grace, that we will not turn away from, that we will turn toward. That we will allow His presence to melt us into repentance and it not harden us into pride. So, 
this relational engagement with Him is a process. And it looks something like this. If you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, then will you move from denial to reality? Can you actually hear? When he says into your heart or through the scriptures, put zero trust in your own good works. Can you live in that reality? Are you covered up in denial? This is not making a case to do away with good works. We are to grow in the capacity for good works. This is to make the case that we won't trust in those good works. That we trust only in His good work for us. Then move from pride to humility. Which has to do with what we see, what we're thinking, but what we're focused on. And pride is a looking at self much. It doesn't necessarily have to be arrogant, though it can be, or haughty. But pride can just simply be a preoccupation with self. Even if you don't like self, even if you're condescending to self, even if you're putting down self, you're still thinking about self all the time. Self, 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 self. That's still pride. And so it's a matter of stop looking at self so much and start looking at God more. And that's humility, looking at self less, looking at him more. Will you then move from extolling to confession? Extolling, talking well of self. Trying to put forth the best foot, the best impression. Trying to put forth the image, the competency, the adequacy. I've got it together. Pretense. And being more confessional. Which means to agree with God about what God says about me, about you. I mean, in this past week, God's had to tell me freshly, you're selfish, you're greedy, you're sloppy. You didn't give that careful attention. And these are not, you know, slap me around kinds of things. These are like with the adulterous woman. I'm not going to condemn you about that, but stop. I'm doing something in you that's better than that. Lean into that. Cooperate with that. Become. Which leads me to say in the last place where I, I move from a preservation of my life to a mortification A crucifying of my life. See, we're all about how do I hang on to who I am and what I've got? How do I preserve it? How do I advance it? And he's like, no, don't keep holding on to your old life. Let it go. Lose it. Crucify it. 
It's the seed that falls in the ground and must die to its old way of life so that it springs forth into a new kind of life. This is what I meant uh, uh, the last few weeks where I'm saying he's not about making a better you. He's about making you a Christ-like person. And so he's looking to crucify us so that we no longer live. And now we have the life of Christ. And so when we look into Romans 6 and he says that we must die daily, we must crucify self daily. Romans 12, where I daily sacrifice myself, it's to that point of mortifying the old man, the flesh, the sin, so that I come alive into a new being. This is what this process is about, friends. This is why we're inviting you to engage your group in a special way these days, because it's in that relational context that we are able to work through these things, encourage one another, uh, confess with one another, uh, stir one another on, be accountable with one another. This is why it's not a Lone Ranger deal. We have to have one another for that kind of journey. And we're having a special convening of our church family on Saturday, October 16, to, in a heightened and intensified kind of way, address these things and basically launch ourselves together into new chapters of life. The chapter that we're in right now is a chapter called Repentance Unto Holiness. In the story that God's been writing of our lives, we're in the chapter, repent and become a holy people. And we're looking October 16 to turn a page. We're going to fully finish the chapter, turn a page, and go into a whole new chapter of crucified people who are in Christ and now have His life in more deep and profound and far-reaching ways than we've had. So, will you? Will you attend that church-wide gathering on the 16th? We need to know you're coming, so if you'll check that on your card, that would be a big help. Will you confess sins? We'll have some confession on that day, but we're already being invited to confess before we even get to that day. Will you confess in your small groups? Will you confess with some trusted others? This isn't something that you do loosely and lightly with just anybody. I've just confessed kind of as an example some of the things that are appropriate for me to say in here. I've had to confess with those that I do group with this past week in more detail. Will you fast? We're inviting you to fast after your evening meal on Thursday the 14th. Until we break fast together at lunch on Saturday the 16th. So it's basically fasting for four meals. You go, I don't know much about that. We gave you an insert in your program today that gives you a little guidance about that. If you have some more questions about that, you can talk to your share group leader about that. You can talk to me about that. Our email's working now, so we'll be glad to respond. 
And you go, well, I already know. I got, you know, I'm on medications or I've got this physical thing. That's fine. Fast from something other than food. You go, well, like what? Well, pray. Ask God to speak to you about what you might fast about. And then would you pray? Engage him. Get still before him. Allow him to speak into your heart. Let's pray right now. As you bow, we're praying together. Psalm 51. Oh Lord, would you create in me a clean heart? Oh God, and renew a right spirit in me. Take not your holy presence away from me. Purge me and cleanse me that I might know the joy of my salvation. In Jesus' name.